0: Hello listeners, this is uh, Brian Gorlick, um a friend of Scott Lecky and somebody who's been um, following this journey called life with him for more or less the same amount of time. We're going to be turning the tables on Scott today and doing an interview of uh, the founder of this podcast and I'm delighted to play that role of asking Scotty questions. And many of you may know him as Scott Leckie, but I've always referred to him as Scotty because we go way back. We met each other as law students in Europe, in Strasbourg, in the summer of 1986, so some time back. And since that time, Scott has been on a journey of learning and human rights and activism, and he is very much a world citizen. And we're going to ask him about his journey and his work and his perspective on life, very much along the lines of what he's done with some of the people he's interviewed, but, but also looking at some of the contributions he's made, important contributions to the world of human rights protection and human rights norms, particularly around the right to housing, which he's a renowned expert on. And also, I'd like to ask him a little bit about what he's doing beyond the human rights world to look at alternative forms of, of medicine and looking at world citizenship. So before we really get started with Scott, I want to read out a quote. He's listening to this, as I hope all of you are. And I want to just I read out one quote that I have found inspiring. And as I read it, of course, I'm reminded of Scott because it's from someone that he holds dear, and many many of us hold dear. So before we really get started asking Scotty about his life journey, I want to read a quote from somebody that he admires, and many of us admire, uh, both musically, but also in a philosophical sense, and it goes as follows. What we're thinking about is a peaceful planet, We're not thinking about anything else. We're not thinking about any kind of power. We're not thinking about any kind of struggles. We're not thinking about revolution or war or any of that. That's not what we want. Nobody wants to get hurt. Nobody wants to hurt anybody. We would all like to be able to live an uncluttered life, a simple life, a good life, and think about moving the whole human race ahead a step or a few steps. So following that, I'd just like to ask Scott to tell us who, who, who said that, Scott, and, and how has that individual or that group of individuals played any influence in your in your life and your perspective on life and and then as well if I could ask a little bit about your background. Where are you from and who were some of the biggest influencers in your, let's say, early formation and And why not? Let's jump ahead to let's fast forward through high school and college and up to the point where we where we met in in Europe when you were studying international law in the UK and I was studying law in Canada and we actually met in France. Who who made who whose quote is that that I just read out?
1: Oh, that's piercingly obvious. That's that's Mitch McConnell, you know, the head of the Republican Party in the Senate, right? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it clearly? It has to be Mitch making a did, pitch. Did, did
0: Mitch McConnell. Mitch making the pitch. Guitarist in a band. What were the? whoops the name of the band again? Was Mitch McConnell? I'm the,
1: not the sure. Guitarist
0: and singer, writer in the band, The Grateful Dead. Um, i he was. Video.
1: They kicked him out right at the beginning. But man, he was he was promising yeah. in, in '65. Now, that was a now, clearly yeah. recognizable quote from the one and only. Jerome Garcia, the four-fingered maestro, you know, Jerry Garcia, of course, Grateful Dead. Yeah, And, you know, that's a very good quote to use because, of course, in a few days' time, it will be the 25th anniversary of his death, if you can imagine that. Um, his birthday, 1st of August, just passed a few days ago, so he would have been 78, only not that old. You know, he died when he was 53, the Mighty Jerry, and yeah. um, you know, yeah. lucky for me, I was turned on to the Grateful Dead by. Um, I had a record in high school, um, you know, in the mid se- late seventies, um, which was a kind of a pseudo record. I mean, it was a greatest hits thing, so it wasn't really like a true album. Um, so I knew of them, and um, but then I wasn't that into them. And then I had this girlfriend, Lisa Safran, in nineteen eighty three, and she took me to my first show in downtown San Francisco at the San Francisco Civic. 30th of December, 1983. Never looked back. 37 years. Still as into it today as I am, as I was uh, back then. So missing those shows right now, I'll where, tell you.
0: Where In San Francisco at that time period, where, where did you grow up?
1: Well, I grew up in um, a place called Newport Beach, California. Well, first I lived in Los Angeles, quite downtown L.A., And then we moved to Glendale, which is a suburb of L.A. And then when I was six in 1968, big year, uh, we moved to Newport Beach. So I spent my whole remaining youth, ages 6 to 17, in fancy, very white, very conservative, very wealthy Newport Beach. And when I became 17, um, I hightailed it out of there and went up to comparatively very poor, very left-wing very alternative uh, Oregon, where I went to university and where I ran uh, cross country with some of the best runners in the world for a while there.
0: But you were a California boy then, and, and notwithstanding some, let's say, middle class privilege, you also had all the the good influences and alternative influences that that California, in particular, can offer. So, what what were some of those besides the Grateful Dead?
1: Well, I had I had. Um you know, um, the traditional beach-related influences and wave-related influences and sports-related influences and things like that. But, you know, when I was a young kid, being from a very, very strong Republican Party family, um, I didn't really get or understand um, progressive politics at all. And in fact... um, you know, a highlight I remember when I was young, like eight years old or 10 years old, like the big thing to do once every few years was to, my parents would take me to this restaurant in San Clemente, California, which is a little bit south of Newport Beach. And and they would arrange for me to sit in the chair that Richard Nixon sat in when he went to that oh restaurant. Goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and that was, oh consi- my goodness. that was considered like a highlight, you know. And um, I once shook Richard Nixon's hand, actually, as he was getting into a helicopter somewhere in Southern Cal when I was really young. Yeah, And I even remember my first ever, you know, my whole life, adult life has been political. And I remember, you know, I was really thinking about that some time ago. Like, what was the very first kind of political act I ever did? And I remember vividly, like, as if it was yesterday, um, it must have been October or November 1968, and I was marching around the playground at my elementary school with other kids chanting, Nixon, Nixon, he's our man, Humphrey's in the garbage can.
0: So that was like my first ever, that's a a revelation.
1: There you go. I don't think anyone in the whole world knows that.
0: (laughs) And then, oh my goodness. Yeah. But that, I, I certainly didn't know that. Um, you've certainly gotten over that, um, when you made it you were in high school you were athletic you were you were a runner you were what what kind of running did you do middle distance long distance
1: I did yeah both both middle distance and long distance yeah. I mean the shortest Which race was hard. uh it was hard yeah I mean there were there were weeks when we were running you know and using U, US miles when I was running you know 100 miles a week right 160 kilometers a week at age 15 16 17 yeah. You know, like we were churning out the miles. So the shortest race that I was like competitive at was 800 meters, but that was very rarely run by me. And then, or or it was 880, actually, using yards like the Americans use. And then the mile, but my main forte was the two mile or, you know, 3,000 meter equivalent.
0: What was was your best mile or two miles? Do you remember? I'm sure you do. My best two
1: mile was 937 and That's
0: impressive old man
1: which was pretty fast and my fastest mile was okay. like 435 so not that That's fast awesome. not that fast but you know not bad for like 16 year old 17 year old and then
0: what do you think your fast? what do you think your fastest mile would be today no Sorry, comment shouldn't be no laughing.
1: comment i i you know i often have um i often have these like you know Thinking back, moments like, "Oh man, yeah, I want to. Sure. I'm going to totally train so I can run a five minute mile now." You know, and then I start training, yeah. and then within three or five days, one the knee goes out, or my ankle goes out, or the arch right, in my right. foot goes right. out. You know, and then I'm like, yeah. oh rats! Because it it always happens. It just happened the other day. I was really starting to get like fast, like by my standards now, fast.
0: Yeah, um, not Good. fast
1: as a kid, but fast now. And then I was just jamming across the grass, and it was nice and fresh. It wasn't to- wasn't hot, wasn't cold. You know, it was like maybe 14 degrees Celsius. And I was all alone on this oval, on this big field. No one was around. And I'm like, I'm really going to go for it this time. And then three quarters of the way across, I just boom had this piercing pain in my calf. Off. Yeah, that's yeah, unfortunate. That's, so that, I don't, I couldn't run. Older,
0: but but it's clear that your mind your mind is still thinking about those days and youthful. But the body sometimes. Uh, doesn't play catch up, but well, there's a feeling you, you know, there's a, a scholarship, feeling, didn't it?
1: But, no, 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 it didn't get it. Go didn't, ahead. didn't I was a walk on at the University of Oregon, I didn't get a scholarship, but it was, you know, it was a, it was a key uh, motivation for going there. Um, but you know, and, just
0: and what, 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 for, the, for the listeners who don't understand the importance of the University of Oregon and running at that period, what was going on at the University of Oregon?
1: Well, University of Oregon was like, um i don't know for american listeners would know like the university of alabama for football or something like that or or, um you know duke for u.s college basketball you know you know schools that are really famous for a particular sport and obviously eugene oregon the home of the oregon ducks and, and oregon university of oregon um was sort of the premier running school and it still is in many ways i mean they have the the world's greatest track um you know, the track stadium was called Hayward Field. Um, you know, and many, many Olympians got their start there. Steve Prefontaine, of course, was a great hero of that area. Bill Bowerman, the guy that started, you know, who invented the Nike swoosh, um, was from the University of Oregon. He was the coach. Phil Knight, who owns Nike, you know, he was a runner at the University of Oregon. And, and Rudy Chapa and Bill McChesney and all these really, really great runners were there. So I was totally right. into it. And, um, but I also wanted to really badly get out of Southern California, you know, I was kind of losing interest in that whole reality. So that,
0: what did did you, what did you study and, and, and how did the running work out for you?
1: Well, you know, running is unlike anything else. You know, I mean, you know, I, I'm lucky enough that I can do most sports halfway decently, um, and most kind of physical activities that don't involve too much balance, <laughs> I can do pretty decently. And there really is like nothing that compares to having a really, really good run. You know, I mean, it's truly an extraordinarily good feeling, right? So, it wasn't that hard. And during that time, you know, during that night, that was like nineteen. 19- My premier running years were like 1978, 79, 80 kind of thing. And I had these, this running streak, um, where I didn't miss one day for like 500 days, you know? Um, and it was kind of like a religious thing almost like, Oh no, I haven't gone yet today, you know? And, um, and I would usually go five or 10, 15 miles a day during that time. And so I was in peak condition when I got to the university of Oregon and, and, it was, it was quite cool of my mom, who was, like, dropping me off there. And, um, you know, I was really reticent to go and see the coach. You know, this is Bill Dillinger. This is, like, the greatest running coach in, you know, the world ever, you know. And, um, you know, I had to go in and and try to get on the team, right. But I was so reluctant. I was so nervous and shy as a little teeny yeah. skinny, skinny little 17-year-old kid, you know. <laughs> and um she's like you gotta go in and ask him you gotta go in and ask him so i did it and um he said how fast have you run and i said this and that you know yeah i can run under 15 minutes for 5ks and i can hit around 30 for 10ks and stuff he said oh that's okay that's good come and meet us uh, this afternoon at um i think it was called amazon park and and you can work out with the team i'm like holy crap really all right great so i went back to the car like so excited and, um, this is when my mom was still there. like she dropped me off, we, she drove me all the way to university, which is also very nice, you know from California, you know it's right. fifteen hundred kilometers with all my stuff in the car and a bike on the roof and everything
0: and but, anyway, but that's the classic college American trip right
1: the classic trip, and of course, she was weeping and crying at the end, and I didn't understand it at the time, but I would understand it so much now, <laughs> you know being a right. par- parent right. and everything right. but um, and then I went to that workout at this amazon place I had no idea where it was or what it was we had to look it up on a map and we show up there and like there were world record holders you know like running around warming yeah. up and I'm like holy crap including alberto salazar if you ever remember who that guy is um who held the world record I think for a while on the marathon and he was you know one of the great american he's a great american coach now I mean there's some scandals surrounding him or something but um you know for the time he was really quite a stud and um i had to do this most vicious workout with these guys i still remember it um you know and i was the i was used to doing hard workouts but this was another level you know so basically to make a long story short i only could stick it out for like four or five months basically it was just too hard on my body you know i just couldn't handle it so i ran a bunch of you know cross-country races and meets and and this and that but then other other easier lifestyle choices presented themselves, and I went with those. You know, so that I was. I can
0: imagine. And what, what were what were some of those? If, uh, but huh. remember, this is a family show. Those thought, we're just so, exploring um, the uh, what, what, exploring. What did, you, what did you ease into?
1: Exploring the contours of uh, the potential of the human mind, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> And that was just so much easier, you know. That followed by a three thirty in the morning Domino's pizza delivery was a lot easier than running twenty miles the next day. So <laughs> let's just say I I slowly fell into that category. And yeah. uh,
0: what did you what did you study though? You must have studied something because you ultimately went to graduate school and you were you were a clever young man. So what what was your major?
1: I studied political science Charlotte. and. Uh, uh, you know, with a kind of minor in international affairs and and uh, did okay. And, you know, and one of the, you know, the mem- most memorable course I had in terms of what happened later in life was um, University of Oregon at that time was like the only university, I think, in the United States by chance that offered an undergraduate international human rights law course, Right. So I indusment. thought, oh, that sounds yeah, cool. Indusment. I'm going to take that. You know, I'm told, that's that's cool. So I took that. And it was a great professor called uh, Tom Hovitt, amazing guy with a crew cut. And he was part of the Kennedy administration, in fact. And then right. he switched into teaching. And he died not long after I left uh, Oregon and the United States. Isn't that, in, isn't that interesting? But, but it often
0: does take those moments or teachers to... Kind of turn you on, or experiences to turn you on. I, I, did, I totally. don't remember you sharing that with me either, but that's that's interesting. So that inspired you, and at least turned you on that there's this world called human rights.
1: Exactly, exactly. You, and there was a did you, did you, there was a moment when I went up to Hovit, you know, Tom Hovit, and I said, "Look, you know, I got to decide what I'm going to do with my life. So I do want it to be political in direction, um, but how do you and how do you actually choose? You know, I mean, how do you choose?" why don't you choose you know developing you know the question of development of third world countries of, of developing countries or or the women's movement or the environmental movement or the anti nuclear movement or the central american movement or whatever it may be how do you actually choose how do you know and he and he just said you know just think about it and eventually you will know you know and um and i I did, I thought about it a lot, and I just figured, you know, to make a long story short, I basically figured that if you wanted to, you know, make the world better, if you wanted to reduce human suffering, that human rights was the best pathway to go because it was something that affected everybody everywhere every day. So the reach and the scale right. of it, it was broader than any of those other kind of movements, and I was involved in all those other movements as well. You know, I mean, I started, I co-founded the Oregon Green Party, for instance, you know, back in the early 1980s and worked with uh, the Student Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament and all sorts of other um, movements. The Eugene Council for Human Rights in Latin America, those are all things I did at Oregon before I decided to to hit the road and uh, go get my right, LLM right. No, but those
0: those um, those student experiences and journeys. Actually, during this COVID period, I've also you know sitting in Sweden at our home, have been going through old papers and found old things. You know, another common friend of ours. Um, Jeff O'Malley and I ran for student council in the University of Winnipeg, and I found our old campaign pamphlet that we printed on on, that we that we printed on a gestetner machine. Oh yeah, (laughs) and handed out. And uh, no, those those um, formative years are are important. So, but that's great to hear that you had. Both experiences of you know the sports, but also the experience of getting turned on to human rights and having a caring professor. I mean, now now you're teaching, and we'll we'll get to that. And turning on, let's say, the next generation or people who are interested in in doing work that helps the world and is human rights oriented is is a is a privilege. Actually, I think you know I'm also in that position of doing some teaching, and it's fantastic to see that there's a lineup still around the block of people who want to do this kind of work and fight the good fight but you know back back to you and your experience going to University of Oregon what did you did you, did you decide then and there then to pursue graduate studies in, in human rights and and I know you did a master of laws at the University of Essex and then we met when we were both studying and respectively in the UK and Canada we met in the summer course in Strasbourg that still goes on that the Council of Europe sponsors but did did you start looking around for a program, or, or what led you to to um, the University of Essex and their their international public law and human rights program?
1: Um, well, um, you know, I got my undergraduate degree in political science, and then I, you know, promptly moved into this um, incredibly amazing house with about. Ten or twelve other people. That was called Stonehenge, which is basically a like h- hardcore hippie commune house on the outskirts of Eugene, surrounded by trees and fields and all that. And um, you know that was a truly amazing time in, in every single possible way. And um, you know during that time, I was you know working in a in a restaurant in all sorts of different ways and just trying to figure out what you know what I'm going to do. And then this one day, you know they have this thing in Oregon called the Country Fair, the Oregon Country Fair, which is you know, like it's 1967 Summer of Love all over again, right? And it lasts like a week and it's in the middle of the woods in Oregon, like f- several thousand people go. And it's super awesome if you're into that sort of thing, which I was. And um, at one point, though, you know, I just started looking around and seeing all these guys are like 40, 50, 60, 70, and they were just there forever, you know? And it totally dawned on me, I, you know, that's a great reality for these guys. It's beautiful, but it's, I can't do that you know, there's no, it. life is so perfect here, I have to go, you know, and that's kind of a credo I've had ever since, really, you know, almost, you know, whatever, 35 years, you know, I, I've lived in lots of different places and worked in many more, and usually, luckily, knock on wood, every time I leave a place or a country to move to the next one, um, I leave at the pinnacle peak Acme moment of my love of that place, you know. And, um, and that in, that ensures that I uh, have fond memories of it forevermore, you know? And it was very much like that in Eugene. I was at, could not have possibly been happier in every single category of life. It was absolute perfection. But then I started looking at these guys who were stuck doing the same thing. Some blissful stuff, but nonetheless the same stuff in one town, in one state, in one country. And I said, I got to get out of here. So I went to the library one day and picked up, one of the first editions of Human Rights Internet Magazine, which is from Canada, you know? And um, they were more like booklets then, and I started going through it, and there was an ad. There was an ad. I mean, there was no internet then, obviously. There were no computers and nothing. You just had to go to the library and figure stuff out. And um, there was an ad. (laughs) There there was an ad for the University of Essex International Human Rights Law Program where you could get an LLM degree in only one year. And I thought that's awesome. So I applied and I got it.
0: Sounds like it. Sounds like it. Sounds like a trick, (laughs) Uh,
1: almost. And the you know the price was not high, you know, and it was just like this is the perfect ticket
0: to an American experience. That's for sure. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, I don't even remember what the fees were at that time, but I it it was, I I, maybe two thousand pounds or something, you know, like it was so much more affordable than than anything in the United States or or whatever.
0: But that's
1: fun. Yeah. Yeah. So it totally worked out. And then, I, you know, I guess I was planning to leave forever, pretty much, the United States at the tender age of 22. Um, But I didn't think of it totally in those terms when I left Um, because I still had so many friends and family and all these little scenes going on. And um, but it, it is the way it turned out. That's for sure. You know.
0: But it was a but it was a program specifically on international. I'll, I'll say international public law, but human rights, refugee, and humanitarian law, with yeah. some really world-renowned professors: Francoise Hampson, Jeff Gilbert, uh, right. the late night, the, the late um, great Nigel Rodley, etc. I mean, it was really a hub of of uh, intellectual prowess in that field. Yeah, Malcolm Shaw. Law, and you were coming from a politics background. Did you think of being a lawyer? or Was there I mean, I know your father was a prominent lawyer in, in California. Did that have an influence in you choosing the path of, of law? And, uh, and, and if I may, cause I know you're very close to your father and I had the pleasure of meeting him on numerous occasions, including in California, which was awesome. And we threw a football together. I, I, yeah. I distinctly remember your father throwing the perfect spirals. <laughs> I thought, yeah, he's done this before. I mean, did that have an influence on your path?
1: Oh, yeah, totally, absolutely. And, man, the guy could throw a perfect spiral until he was 84, man. It was unbelievable, you know, unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, he died when he was 84, <laughs> but perfect spiral every time. Yeah. Not bad for a, you know, very hardworking lawyer. And so, he was a
0: cool, And a cool guy. And, and a totally a cool guy. Who, unassuming, unassuming, unassuming. Guy.
1: And nice to everybody, you know, loved by everybody, one of those kind of guys. and um, But very conservative politically, you know, and then I just kind of worked on him. And, you know, he voted Democrat all the time the last 20 years of his life, maybe more. You know, he really he really had a big heart, you know, which is, which is very challenging in the, in the environment where he lived and worked to not vote Republican. Right. right. Very Republican area. So.
0: But you helped him. But you helped him figure it out. I know. He yeah. Was very proud oh, yeah, of the work totally. that he's done over the years. And, and of course, children influence parents and vice versa. But um, was he was he a big influencer in your life?
1: Oh yeah. In countless ways. Of course. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, I I never really wanted to be a lawyer like him, you know, because I saw what that actually entailed, you know, which is leaving the house at six in the morning, sitting in on the, you know, the 405 freeway and L and driving to LA for two hours in traffic and then just fighting all day long as you do as a lawyer and then getting home like way, way after dinner and just saying, you know, Hey guys, I'm home. See, you know, sleep well, you know, that kind of thing. Right. I didn't want that existence. Um, but, you know, he did it basically because he was interested in it, but he he did it for his family, you know, he was totally into that sort of, sort of thing. And, um, yeah. And, you know, an ultimately cool guy that influenced me in countless ways. Yeah, absolutely. What he was a totally cool dude who I just got closer and closer to like his life went on, even though I lived, you know, on the other side of the world for all kind of all of it. (laughs) Um,
0: yeah, but that's, that's great. And, and he was a very uh, sweet fellow, but you know, intellectually a giant too. And, and you, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I think you you you, you gained you gained from him, and of course your your mother too. But um, you know, his his interest and, and depth of, of knowledge, I'd say, in terms of getting deep into some of the areas of law and um, and, and law is an interesting thing—not uh, just the study, but but also in terms of it, its application—and and, and just moving forward the conversation a bit, Scott. You you were at you did the LLM at Essex, but but what turned you on to um, ultimately, um, you know, the right to adequate ha- adequate housing and environmental issues, and because even I'd say, if I'm not mistaken, at that time those were fairly new things. Um, uh, you know the right to a clean environment, and, and looking at uh, housing rights issues, and the whole socio-economic rights paradigm. There was much more of a focus, as there often still is, on civil and political rights to some extent. But mm-hmm. you know, what what turned you on to that path? Um, well, that's a good. That's
1: a good question. Yeah. You, so.
0: You, you may, maybe you didn't have that that much really to work with, if you will, right? In terms of.
1: Well, it wasn't just that sources, they were new. Uh, it wasn't just that they were new subjects they were they were not even subjects basically you know barely 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 there was one book um, at the time I studied at Essex, I think there was literally one book that was ever published about environmental human rights issues um, and certainly no books and no academic articles at all on the international right to adequate housing and So I did my thesis, my LLM thesis on the right to a sound environment and whether it could exist within uh, current realms of international human rights law. That stressed me out a lot. Um, But it it came out okay, a couple hundred pages long. Uh, You know, in the pre-computer era, that was a challenge. Um, And then that slowly but surely kind of, um, you know, morphed into housing rights. So, you know, environment and housing rights can't really be, you know, divorced from one another very easily. So, yeah, you can't really divorce environment from the place where people live. And then I started thinking, you know, I think I read the word housing in a bunch of these human rights treaties, but I've never read or heard of any articles or books about it. And then one thing led to another. And uh, quite literally, I was given a list of 10 people to call to to try to get jobs. And nine of them said, we don't have anything. And this is when I was living in Holland already, after Essex. And then I called the 10th one and... I said, I got a message from this woman that said, you were looking for somebody to do work on the right to housing. And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I have to go now. I'm really busy. And I'm like, are you sure you don't have any? He's like, no, sorry, I have to go. And literally I'm like, okay, well, thanks anyway. And I'm hanging up the phone and I hear like, wait a minute, you know, and I put it back to my ear. Mm -hmm. It was like that. It was like a dramatic moment that totally changed my life trajectory forever. That one call. And then he said, "Oh, now I know what you're talking about. Yes, we need we need to uh, have somebody do research on a on a book on whether the UN Charter can protect people who live in slums." And I'm like, "I'll do it." Where
0: was that? <laughs> uh, what, what organization was that?
1: That was the uh, that was David Satterthwaite. Shout out to David Satterthwaite. Totally great guy um, um, from the International Institute for Environment and Development in London. And um, and then I went over to London on the boat overnight and. Met up with David, and then uh, he looked around for some money, and that was my first ever paid human rights gig. You know, way back in 1987, around about there. Yeah, the International Year of Shelter for the Homeless that was, and um, that was uh-huh. my first gig. And then I, you know, wrote the the first book on the right to adequate housing, and and then it sort of just branched off into a whole bunch of different directions after that.
0: That's cool sometimes those calls. So, I mean, a couple of themes here, one was, you know, your mom saying, go in and ask if you can run with the team <laughs> right. and you're kind of reluctant, but you did it and you did it. And then similarly, you know, that, you know, phoned around as one has to do still today. There's nothing old with that, although we send emails and don't get responses, but it's different when you have somebody on the end of a telephone line Oh, you bet. and uh, but good for you, that person perseverance. And then, so you did that for a while and, and w- then w- where did you end up?
1: Um, well, I mean, my modus was, you know, and my, my desire was, you know, I really loved Holland at that time. I really loved it, you know, um, deep urban living with all of the, you know, fun things you can do in Holland and uh, which you couldn't do in any other country, um, and very progressive politics and, um, you know, the home of international law too, of course, you know, the, the land of Hugo de Groot, gro- you know, the father of modern international law. And, and the, you know, okay, the yeah. thing that really grabbed me there was, like, in the Dutch Constitution, it actually says if there's, a, if there's a dispute between domestic law and international law, international law shall prevail, you know? And I just thought, are you kidding me? This is unbelievable. I can't believe yeah, there's people yeah, that... Yeah, there's true. countries that use this principle and they actually apply it, you know? And that just made me, like, so amazed. And I thought, wow, this is really you know, the place for me. So I, I really, really wanted to stay there. But, you know, it wasn't so easy, you know, finding work and that type of thing. Um, so I just did little gigs here and there like that, like the, like the, you know, the housing rights book and stuff. And then I started learning about international organizations that were working on, um, like, the rights of slum dwellers and that type of thing. And then I um, uh, hooked up with a group called Habitat International Coalition, which is still going strong, which was formed... Um, following the famous Vancouver um, UN meeting on uh, human settlements in 1976, when um, Pierre Trudeau was prime minister, and there were all sorts of antics behind the scenes, which we not, won't talk about there, but um, here, but um, that inspired this movement to turn into an organization, and then I linked up with them and got them to pursue housing rights because they hadn't pursued housing rights at all. They they were only doing it from a sort of community organization level. And then I was their like legal counsel at the UN for a long time. And then they couldn't really generate the resources that I needed to really do what I wanted to do at the UN. So then I set up a, my first NGO in 1991 in my house in Utrecht in Holland. And, um, and then lots of other things that was the center on housing rights and evictions core, which was founded at Havikstrad 38 beasts in Utrecht. (laughs) And, um,
0: in your, in like adjacent to your bedroom kind of thing.
1: Yeah. In my home office in that house. Yeah. So that's like, I, well, the 30th anniversary of that will, will be coming soon actually. Yeah. So 1991. So next year,
0: but when you when you were in Holland doing that kind of work, were there were there any people that were um, and I kind of it's interesting because you know I, I every day and I, you may as well I, I still re- I receive now you know regular blogs from people like Hans Thulen, who was mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you know f- former UNHR official but also you know Dutch national human rights guy since way back and still going strong yeah um, yeah and i remember we met him actually scott i don't know if you remember remember we met him for lunch or something and he, he was very nice you know and we kind of you look up to people like that because they were really working in the human rights or, you know, yeah totally and, totally and we were and we were keen to get a gig of course after getting well I, I did that it. that and, was and
1: I, yeah that was my first like you know in office uh placement doing human rights work was with him with him and uh, Herbert Vesterfain, who also became a UNHCR official afterwards, and that was in Utrecht also. Right. So that was called SIM, right, right. you know, That's the the that, Centrum that. for Mensenrechte.
0: Yeah. So, but, and I remember Hans saying, you know, you, that it was memorable for me in any event, and he kind of looked at us, and we were obviously keen. <laughs> you know, where the human rights world is failing is is, is not creating enough opportunities for young people like you. Right, and I thought, right Yeah, you right. know all we need is an opportunity you know and uh that's it we'll, we'll hopefully, we'll hopefully jump back to that theme but you know what what can young people do uh to support human rights progression today is, is something that we should also totally during this conversation totally but so core went on for a long time and I remember you moved then um with your now um Wife Kirsten Young to Geneva and Core was set up like Kitty Corner from the UNHCR headquarters in Geneva. Yeah,
1: world's best and, office.
0: Uh, yeah, the world headquarters of Core, run by one one eccentric uh, ex-Californian named Spot Lecky. And but you were doing a lot of interesting work there. What, what was the kind of work you were doing, both um, vis-a-vis the UN and and, and pushing? Forward new norms and principles, but then also in countries. What were a few of the standout moments from that period when you when you headed core? Um, that you could share? Right.
1: Well, there's a lot. You know, there's a real lot. Um, but you know, it may from the outside it may not have appeared necessarily that there was a, a, like a big strategic vision, <laughs> um, but there totally was. You know, and um, you know the the big art. You know, the the overarching vision was to basically take a whole series of, you know, what are generally peripheral issues and put them into the mainstream. And once they were fully right. mainstreamed, we would stand back right. and then work on the next one and then work on the next one and work on the next one. And now, you know, I mean, to this day, um, I don't know, probably 10 or 20 or 30 of the different initiatives we undertook are are totally mainstream now in the UN, going from absolutely nothing to, um, you know, quite significant things, you know, like the existence of special rapporteurs on the right to... Adequate housing and the existence of standards, you know, legal standards that define housing rights, that define forced evictions. You know, I guess one of the, you know, the very first sort of thing that, you know, I wrote and got through and approved by an official UN body was in 1991 also. So that was a really significant year. And that was a resolution... At, um, actually, it was 1990, but I was only peripherally involved in that one. That was a resolution on population transfer, the illegality of transferring one's citizens into the territory right. of another. Um, right. And then that was, of course, uh, um, around the same time that there was a resolution on uh, Tibet, if you can imagine that, at the Subcommission on the Prevention of Discrimination and for the Protection of Minorities. I worked a lot on that, and that was that was voted on in the end, nine to seven To one, I think so. Nine, four, seven against one abstaining, and that was the last time there's ever been any um, official condemnation of Chinese um, practices in Tibet. So that was pretty amazing to be part of that, and I just I kind of couldn't believe I was there in the middle of it all, you know. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go for a housing rights resolution. Then I'm going to go for an evictions resolution, and so. The first kind of major thing that I sort of, you know, really drove myself and wrote and lobbied for and followed up was a resolution at that same subcommission in 19, in August 1991, 29 years ago exactly, just about, on uh, forced evictions. And that was like the first time that forced evictions were ever specifically classified as, a, as an outright gross and systematic violation of the internationally recognized right to adequate housing. And so that was a huge, gigantic step forward. And then that has been built upon, you know, ever since and manifested in all sorts of other standards, but also, you know, direct condemnations by legal and quasi-judicial bodies against governments that arbitrarily evicted um, people en masse, you know? So it was all these different pathways like that that were, you know, pursued. Um, So, you know, around the same time, I think it was 92 or 94, we got... um, the United Nations Committee on Economic Social and Culture Rights, to be the first UN body to ever uh, formally condemn forced evictions in a member state of the UN, and that was the Dominican Republic. Um, And that was a huge victory, because not only did that make headlines in all the national papers there, you know, you know, uno condena el gobierno para desalojos forzosos, you know, UN condemns government yeah. for forced evictions because this is during the time that they were trying to revitalize Santo Domingo and be, in in preparing for the uh, celebrations of Columbus landing there, you know, five hundred years before, right. and they were just wiping out slums right and left. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people were um, evicted.
0: Still, and still happens today for major events, right?
1: Still does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um,
0: Who were some of the people you mentioned? You mentioned the, the committee on the Economic, social cultural. Um, Economic, social, and cultural rights. Who were some of the uh, key members in those days you used to work with? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Philip Alston, yeah, you know, professor at NYU, he was there and was well, a real champion.
1: He was of, a total um, champion. Um, you know, many
0: things, but also you, you had a you know good relationship with him and some other members and sure. push push some strings too. And, and just related to that, I'm, I'm wondering. Do you think, I mean, looking at it with, you know, your perspective of many years, you know, you're talking about 1990, 91, that's, you know, for some of the younger listeners, that's ancient history now. <laughs> but do you think um, the UN was, uh, and then we'll talk about your field work, but the UN specifically and, and trying to influence uh, those bodies, and, you know, today it's the Human Rights Council, but a number of the Human Rights Treaty Body. Uh, committees are still exist, of course, and they mm-hmm. have a number of prominent members, and they still do a lot of the same work, and they still have the same struggles of resources. And there's still many special representatives and, and reporters. Do you, but do you think in those days when you were doing that, and then you know I was nearby, UNHCR also doing that from the institutional perspective, of UNHCR was it easier to do? I mean, was the UN, with your view, more accessible, and you know those personal contacts? Was it? easier to establish them and make things happen um, or, or is it the same dynamic or, you know, is there anything with some hindsight you you could share that, you know, could inspire perhaps people to, to use those, those roads and those paths well traveled?
1: Totally, totally, totally. So, I mean, that's a fantastic question because it has a lot of pretty interesting answers, I think. So one really important point that you know I realize more and more as years go on is that when when you know this was really happening at its you know highest yeah. possible moment uh, in terms of you know success after success after success getting this done getting that done getting this body to approve this getting a resolution through 53 to zero on and on and on you know it was right after right. the end of the Cold War and um, so the Cold War was starting to end around 1989 1990 and up until that time the UN, human rights machinery was really, really stuck, because it was totally in Cold War mode. It was, you know, US versus Soviet Union, and that kept stopping major things from happening. And then once the Cold War ended, um, the UN was just like, oh, we can actually do this now, you know, and nobody's going to block it. So the very few NGOs that were working on the issues that, you know, me and others were working on, uh, totally took advantage of that. And I'd say me personally more than most, and said, look, the sky's the limit, so let's just totally go for it until we get blocked, you know? And um, so we used whatever possible pathways we could to achieve the, the greatest amount in an environment that was really, really conducive to, you know, creative ways of using law and things like that. So we were really lucky without realizing it at the time that um, those early days of the post-Cold War era um it was really, you know, in, in you could almost say NGOs were in charge, you know. The people were in charge. Right. Civil society was driving things. Um, it wasn't just um, pure power politics like it is now. And, you know, there's been a huge regression in the um, UN human rights bodies, I'd say, in the last 10 years in particular. Um 10 to 15 years. Um, The glory period was totally 1990 to 2005, and I just happened by pure chance, (laughs) without even really realizing it at the time, to be most active at the UN human rights bodies during that time period, that 15-year window. So, I mean, that's an important thing to remember, that what you can do now as an NGO person or a civil society person or an expert within... The UN human rights machinery is definitely less than we were able to do at that time because states have really began to, you know, crack down essentially on civil society participation in many of these bodies. I mean, some of them, all you can really do is, you know, give us give a short speech one, once a session and that's it. You know, you can't really yeah. orchestrate that much behind the scenes compared to what it used to be, you know so um right. and so it's great
0: but do you think that's just that's just the influence of states or is it is because you know the treaty bodies in particular that you know they're still ostensibly made up of independent members and although a number of those members would be diplomats appointed by governments and mm-hmm. one could and has been questioned the true independence of some of the actors but there are some true experts still oh, today on tons in tons the, in those sure. positions and and, and they, it seems to me, would would just be lapping up anything that, you know, well researched, well presented, civil society organizations and people on the ground could feed them. In fact, they can't manage without that information. So, uh, I, I, you know, at the interstate level, I agree with you. But but in terms of the, you know, let's say looking particularly at, at state based and, and even individual complaints and issues, um, do you think it's changed that much? Is it less accessible or can we make a distinction between, let's say, a body like the Human Rights Council and, um, and some of the treaty bodies in terms of being having effective access and trying to influence them as you were able to do? Although I do realize the world was easier in those days. And frankly, maybe it was even easier because we didn't have email and the Internet. So you actually have to meet with people and talk to them.
1: Sure. I mean, there there were certainly no computers in any of the council chambers or the commission chambers or the various committees, you know, they didn't even have computers, right? So one of our strategies to overcome that, by the way, was we couldn't send documents electronically. So we would always print our documents on really brightly colored paper. Right. So we, we could see it from the back of the room. We could see exactly where it was on each one of the members' desks, you know? And if it wasn't on was if it wasn't on the top of the pile, like when the break came, the coffee break or the lunch break, I would just kinda linger in the back of the room, everyone would leave, and I would run around to each desk and I'd pull out my rainbow colored paper or my purple paper or whatever and I'd pull it from the bottom and I put it right on top or I put it right where they have to write their their next speech on you know and um and then you just do that time and time and time again and before too long you know they really start talking to you and and strategizing with you because they want to succeed too. So, you know, you, you have to distinguish a little bit between the treaty bodies, you know, those are the committees and stuff that monitor individual treaties and then the political bodies like the human rights council. Sure. But you know, the sure. subcommission that I just mentioned, it doesn't even exist anymore. You know I mean? That's just a classic exactly. example of, it was completely, um, you know, ground to dust. Um, because in many respects it was truly independent. Those were 26 independent experts. Um, who were very, very open often to um inputs by NGOs. Um and extremely open, you know. And um and yeah. in, as a and, matter of fact
0: true ex- but many of them true experts in the field too. I mean leading scholars and actors.
1: Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Like
0: fa- thinkers, yeah. famous
1: professors, famous lawyers, um diplomats yeah. that were, you know, more or less independent and some really great characters on the on those bodies. Amazing people, you know? And um but there's also some seedy characters on them as well, you know, and really, really scoundrel type people that are put there by governments just to block things, you know, and um so I mean, yeah, you have to
0: try and you have to try and work around or with those folks as well, though, and bring them on board. But yeah, there is
1: absolutely, absolutely. can
0: be diverse. What But what do you think, Scott, Like, like, again, and then we'll maybe move forward a bit and uh, get drilled down a little bit into some of the key issues around housing rights and right to adequate housing and some of the country work you've done, which is, it's really spanned the globe. But, you know, again, with a, a view on the UN and, and, you know, we both know, but many, many of the people, uh, the people you've had on your program, on your podcast, in fact, are still working in that system and and know people who are in positions of power, frankly, in, in mm-hmm. the UN system. And um, how, do you think the value of, of working with that system and trying to influence it to do what it should be doing in terms of protection and promoting human rights in an equitable way, how, how do you think uh, activists today can, can access it in a way that that, that would be meaningful and won't be discouraging, if I could put it like that. And, and I, I, I hear you loud and clear. Sometimes you only really get your 15-second or your two-minute, literally two-minute or one-minute mm-hmm. speech in a respective body. But, you know, based on your vast experience working the system, so to speak, which you still do, how, how, how do you think people who are interested in promoting human rights issues can can effectively... Uh, use use the UN
1: system well that's a very complex question but essentially I would say you know um, uh, there's so many dimensions to it but basically you know choose your battles wisely essentially I would say you know so some issues are very amenable to um, using the UN uh, vehicles um, in a favorable way where you're kind of ensured of at least a semblance of victory if not a full-scale victory you know and and choose your battles along those lines as well don't always only choose battles that you know you will lose you know so you know right now if you were to focus exclusively on um, you know human rights in china um chances are at the un you're probably not going to win because the diplomatic power of china is so huge that they will thwart any sort of you know mainstream effort to truly go for it you know and the same thing with other powerful countries, and the same thing with other countries who are allied with other powerful countries. So there is that dimension, you know. At the same time, you know, um, it's the war of the flea. You know, the UN is the war of the flea. So it's like a flea on a dog. You know, there is these teeny little NGOs. Um, they can hide out in the hair of the dog and cause tremendous itching, um, and the dog can't even figure out where they are, who they are, what they're doing. You know, and yet they're having a massive impact upon, you know, it's a it's a bit like, uh, you know, uh, Gulliver's Travels. You know, it's like the small, teeny little actor versus the big, gigantic actor. And if you play your cards right, you can really get things through there still um, that can then be, you know, once you get the U.N. label on something, it takes on a huge amount of power compared to the piece of paper it was beforehand And then you can use that at the local level all across the world um, to promote real local change. And I've seen that happen, you know, time and time again, not always, of course not. But just having that UN backing, and particularly if it was a voted on sort of thing, something that made it through a process which received votes, and then it won, um, and then it became an official UN document, that can be incredibly strategic victory for all sorts of different movements around the world. Will it necessarily mean that you're going to win and justice will prevail? Not even close. Of course not. But in many instances, those decisions are taken far more seriously than people realize um, you know, in particular cynics who think the u n can't really do all that much in that particular way. You know, and once again, the u n is comprised of so many different parts. They all do different things in different places, and they have different types of staffing arrangements and, so on and so forth, but particularly the human rights bodies. Um, I think you can still, there's still utility, but I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket, basically, to cut a long story short.
0: Right. Yeah. There's a memorable quote um, attributed to the Dalai Lama, which kind of reminds me of what you've just said. If you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, but, but, but related to that, I mean, how important is it? Because you've written a lot, and um, you've done your research, a lot of it, very, very, you know, field-based, getting out there, speaking to people, documenting, not just in written word, but um, by digging into the archives, uh, getting first-person, uh, first-hand testimony.
1: Mm-hmm. How
0: important is it for, to be taken seriously, and as you say, choose your battles, but even for the sake of posterity, even if you're going to lose the battle to document things well, and to present them well and ensure that you have your facts right so that uh, if people are going to rely on them, they would have more difficulty turning around and saying, you know, this is incredible. And, it, and any part of that is just kind of the, the basics of professional integrity and, and and being truthful. But, you know, in your experience, it, to have influence, how, how important is it? And what do you think people should keep in mind when they're preparing some of their work and and hoping to have some influence with some of these actors that can monitor, whether it's at the international level or domestic level, uh, monitor human rights compliance and and actually call out actors, including states and individuals, um, on things that aren't um, in compliance with with these human rights standards.
1: Well, you know... Your credibility increases dramatically if you can say that you are actually at the place that you're talking about, right? And um, particularly if you were doing human rights work in that place, right? So, you know, I was generally pursuing kind of a two-track approach. One was like thematic stuff, so getting new laws adopted at the international level that would strengthen the rights of, uh, let's say, refugees to return to their former homes and a whole range of other topics. So I was always doing lots of those generic thematic more legal things, but at the same time doing all sorts of country-specific stuff, right? And so if you go, and I think this is, you know, one of the most interesting aspects of that question is to think about it from the perspective of an ordinary person to truly try to understand, and we'll probably dedicate a podcast or two to this down the road with some, you know, uh, real human rights activists, what it actually means to be a human rights activist in countries where there are human rights violations and what it actually takes on a minute-by-minute basis, you know? and it's not for everyone <laughs> let's just say that it can yeah, be extremely yeah. dangerous in lots of countries i mean you can be killed yeah. very easily i mean you I mean dozens of maybe hundreds of human rights activists are killed every single year um usually it's local people but sometimes international people too um so you know you got to watch out you got to take risks you got to put yourself in really dangerous situations sometimes uh, which you often don't really want to do um but you know that you have to and you know what a lot of people don't realize is that you might read two sentences in a, in a report, you know, um, uh, you know, witness X confirmed that 47 bodies were found at this location on this day. And based on, you know, in-person interviews, just that sentence might've required three weeks of preparation, you know, five days in extremely dangerous circumstances for the person who wrote it, Um, living in very, very bad physical conditions, you know, (laughs) um you know living in a hut um in when it's 35 degrees being bitten by dengue carrying mosquitoes eating really bad food getting dysentery from the water <laughs> you know all of that stuff is part also of doing hardcore human rights work on the ground right depending you know it varies obviously from place to place you can also just stay in the city and stay in luxury hotels um but you know there's a lot of on the ground human rights work which is pretty intense and um so you have to remember that too but at the same time unless you go there and i always say this when i teach my law courses on the very first day i always say this line from um which is developed by this philosopher called ken wilber which is essentially the map is not the territory you know you cannot describe to me what it's like in that place by simply looking at the map you have to go to the territory you know and you have to be there in person you have to see what it's like and only in doing so can you truly grasp the not only the factual reality when it comes to human rights violations, who's doing them, why they're doing them, how they get away with it, who are the victims, but most importantly, what are the remedies and what can be done? I mean, it's easy to recommend uh, something to the Dutch government, for instance, on how to improve prison conditions. You could never make the same exact recommendation to a government, which has notoriously bad prisons in some, you know, sub-Saharan African context. Um, It, because you just know they'd never be complied with. So you can make them, but you just know they wouldn't be complied with. So you have to be more creative and and you know really try to think it through about what can actually work. And of course, the other advantage of being on the ground is you meet people. And you meet not only the good people, you also meet the bad ones, the ones that are carrying out these things or the ones that are behind some of these pogroms and horrible things that go on in the world. Um, and if you're lucky, you might share one glimmer of, Moment with those bad guys and start a relationship with them that ultimately ends in them changing their ways you know and um you know that's i've seen that happen too where people that were just sucked into some bureaucratic system and thought they had to be part of the you know human rights destroying apparatus of the state um you know essentially saw the light and got out of it and when when worked for ngos or whatever they did um but so that's important too, because you know, you can't just ignore people that do bad stuff. You have to engage with them, you have to talk to them, you have to figure out why they're doing it and figure out ways to to stop those practices. And generally, you know, history has shown really clearly that the, the better human rights are protected in countries, the more prosperous those countries become, and the more egalitarian they become, and the more democratic they become. And generally speaking, the better standards of living that people have, and so on and so forth. So there really is a direct link between the protection and improvement of human rights and the qualitative improvements that exist in that society. And, you know, it's not always like that. You know, of course, there's exceptions, but generally speaking, um, the better your human rights situation, the better your economy, the more transparent it is, the more wealthy people become, the more stable it becomes, the more peaceful it becomes, the less likely they are to invade other countries, um, you know, so on and so forth. So that's just a few thoughts on that uh, very, very big question
0: Yeah. Thank you, Scott. That was an excellent answer. (laughs) Um, Zooming out a bit, though, if you look at the world today, um, and if we take what, you know, your last comment about following the human rights agendas, if you will, good for business, but, you know, living in the liberal democratic capitalist world that we are, um, and um, kind of the profound... um, Backsliding we have in many countries in terms of you know broadly speaking democratic values in governments and um, and frankly questioning the whole human rights regime, including you know human rights mm. that are um, promoted through actual entities that are state funded i mean what what gives you doing the work you're doing you know you no know, grounds for, grounds for optimism today i mean where where do you see that there's some threats of good examples and you know we could we, glass half full glass half empty but but you know in terms of good examples that we can look to that we can say hey this is this is the path we should be following or are we just kind of stumbling along and and there's some good examples here but the next election may bring something quite different and you know the world's watching the upcoming U.S. election and you know I, I don't know if you're going to be voting or not but um you know, powerful states and what happens there can influence the world. But where do you you see we're heading? And, and, And then I guess after that, let's discuss how do we get there? Or how do we get beyond there?
1: Well, it's difficult to be entirely optimistic when you look at the state of the world today, whether in human rights terms or political terms, right? I mean, there's, you know, growing authoritarianism, growing nationalism, growing populism, kind of a growth in almost all of the things that would be classified yeah. as anti-human rights, you know, um, anti-democratic. Um, but I still held, held, you know, the, the, one of the two main NGOs that I, you know, have founded and work for now, um, called oneness world. I mean, the, the whole objective of oneness world is really trying to focus on the positive possibilities, right. Of, uh, of a unified planet where every single person shares the same citizenship. And then we build, new structures of governance on that basis of, you know, true equality and true universal uh, prosperity based upon the fact that the planet itself is finite and under extreme threat. And I think there's probably more people that share that way of viewing the world and and that level of consciousness than ever before. Um, Doesn't mean we're closer to achieving it, um, but I think there's, you know, literally tens, if not hundreds of millions of people that would be ready tomorrow, you know, to embrace um, such a vision if it seemed that that vision was, um, you know, very peacefully possible. And so, you know, that gives me a degree of hope. Um, You know, the fact that we have an internet that has all human knowledge on it at the touch of a button, in a way, is a hopeful thing. And, of course, the the antithesis of that is, unfortunately, the vast majority of all the interesting, good educational stuff on the internet is avoided for, uh, you know, other categories of... You know, trolling and and uh, tweeting insults at one another, and uh, and so you know, I think everything. The bottom line is, we have. I will never lose my utopian dreams. You know, no matter what, um, as bad as things look, um, because I know what is you know possible, and you know, I I've had the incredible privilege of working with all sorts of different um, you know political movements around the world, um, where. Things looked impossible, and th- the thought of them actually prevailing and justice prevailing and human rights being protected looked almost zero. And um, and lo and behold, things turned around, you know. And so you know, I was a long term, long time supporter of the people of East Timor, for instance, and and had very very close relations with the entire um, you know opposition movement there that eventually won and got independence for the people of East Timor, and they, they, they became president and, and vice president and, all, and assumed all sorts of other positions, you know, my buddies. Um, and that, that was a great example of something that looked impossible, and yet after 24 years of Indonesian occupation, because of all sorts of, you know, confluent developments that happened at the same time, um, in 1999, they suddenly got independence, and they're, you know, free today. South Africa, you know, the people of South Africa and the ANC overturned apartheid. You know, the U.S. and the U.K. continued to support the white racist regime of South Africa until the very bitter end, as you will recall, I'm sure. The whole rest of the world was totally on the side of democracy and the end of apartheid. Um, And lo and behold, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. And within a few short years, they had one of the best constitutions in the world um, which i was very honored to work on in south africa for a brief period and now they have freedom it's not a perfect situation by any means having lots of struggles but nonetheless apartheid is over so those are two examples of things that looked impossible and suddenly without even being able to predict it they kind of went good you know having said that there are all sorts of ongoing struggles today which are not looking particularly positive positive. Um, and looking almost looking as impossible, or even more so, you know. And obviously the the position of the Palestinians has never been worse. Um, the likelihood of them getting their own independent state is probably lower than it has ever been. Um, the chances of the Kurds forming a unified, solitary state of Kurdistan is probably, in some ways, improving the prospects, but very often not. Um, you know, Tibet. The chances of them getting independence or even autonomy is, you know, extremely low. Um, So there's all sorts of occupied peoples and populations around the world that are not looking very likely to get the freedom and self-determination that they deserve. If you look at the situation of indigenous people across the world, you know, 400 million people at least, um, maybe 800 million are indigenous, um, they are systematically you know, abused and disenfranchised and, and so on and so forth. There are victories here and there. You know, there are definitely uh, leaps forward in the rights, and the recognition of the rights of indigenous people. Um, but nonetheless, they're still at a, you know, comparative um, disadvantage. Um, and then you just look at the poor, the position of the poor. And, and yes, it's okay to accept and, and understand that extreme poverty as a percentage of overall humanity has been declining. I mean, it's all going to be thrown up in the air with, with the consequences of COVID, Uh, but extreme poverty has been going down. But the UN predicts, for instance, that instead of having 1 billion slum dwellers, as the world does now, um, they're predicting that there will be 3 billion slum dwellers by the year 2050 or so. So they're expecting and anticipating a tripling of uh, the world's slum dweller population. And, you know, I've worked in many, many, many slums all across the world and, Yes, they have resilience. Yes, they try hard to survive. Yes, they, they, you know, prevail against all odds and all of that type of thing. Um, but if, they, if, if 99% of slum dollars are given a chance, they would, they would move somewhere else, you know. And um, so it's important to remember that. And then you put it in the context of COVID and the context of climate change, uh, which is far worse than people realize at all levels, whether it's sea level rise or, or the melting Arctic and uh, you know Antarctica and Greenland melting, et cetera, et cetera, or you know drought and all the other consequences of climate change, uh, it's very hard to remain totally optimistic, you know. But I I still uh, try, and you know I will continue to push the line that you know. A unified humanity based on our shared attributes, rather than our very limited differences, um, is probably the only way that we can move forward to, in a multi-generational sense, to um, preserve uh, the human race and allow it to unfold into its, you know, maximum potential. Which to date, it has never come near doing. So I will continue always to push. That line, and you know, I'm lucky enough to have known people from every corner of the planet, and I've really yet to meet one that I didn't share more with, and I didn't share things with. So, you know, that's that's kind of what gives me hope is that, you know, sooner or later, more people will realize that we are actually unified and we are actually all the same, and it's 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 a joy to realize that. There's no fear associated with that. Um, it's actually the ultimate liberation to just luxuriate in the shared understanding of our common humanity. And if more and more of us do that and we set up structures that make that an indispensable part of life, then, then I'll, then I'll be hopeful.
0: Listen, thanks Scott. It sounds both um, attractive and a bit utopian, if I may say, because I guess for a lot of folks who are struggling literally to put the next meal on the table for their children who don't have enough to eat and, even pre-COVID, didn't have a school to attend, Mm -hmm. Um, that idea of a broader solidarity with humankind seems rather remote. Uh, But again, based on your background and experience and and working in communities, kind of two tracks I'd like to explore with you. You know, one of them is, how how important is it, in your view, to to engage local communities, and, and especially women and And minorities of all dimensions and and various social classes to to help, if you will, harness that human potential and and realize better societies. And along with that, of course, peace, equality, and and prosperity. So, you know, again, working with local communities, and then and then drilling down a bit further. You know, what what are the key ways and means? You know, here we are, two frankly Caucasian middle class folks from. North America, who've had the privilege, really the privilege, to do what we've done, um, work-wise and education-wise, etc. But you know, how, how do we how do we engage people who really need those uh, fruits, if you will, of the of a better, more equitable world? And and what can what can what are key ways and means? People, individuals, both you and I. I mean. Beyond us, I mean, you're, the people listening to your program can make a change or a difference. Um, so, th- those are a couple of things I'd like to I'd like to uh, explore with you. And, 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 but I take your your point, and it, it comes across very well. You, you have to remain optimistic. It's it's never easy. It's called a human rights struggle, capital S, for a reason. But uh, how important is it to be inclusive, and, and what can we do individually, never mind collectively, to make a difference?
1: Well, once again, a huge question, but, um, you know, we need to remember that what day it is today, by the way. And, you know, today is the 6th of August, um, 2020. So today is the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, Japan, by the American government who dropped another atomic bomb three days later in Nagasaki and killed tens of thousands of civilians, a few military people, but the vast majority of people killed are civilians. And, um, you know, ever since then, we've lived with the specter of, uh, you know, nuclear weapons hanging over the heads of all of humanity, you know. Um, As I've said before in the podcast, we're the first and only species ever to devise our own extinction, um, if we want to. And that's always in the background, you know. We have to never forget that that's in the background, constantly. So it's not just climate change. It's not just diseases like COVID. It's not just inequality uh, during the age of billionaires, the new gilded age, um, it's also this big, huge nuclear question that's in the background in a world of, you know, far too many countries that have nuclear weapons, right? So, you know, I guess in in response to your question, once again, it's a multifaceted approach that's needed. And, you know, as much as anyone who cares about the rest of humanity wishes they could um, wake up tomorrow, snap their fingers, and all human suffering would go away, um, that's what all of us wish, be absolutely fantastic. Um, obviously that's not going to happen. So you need to choose, um, you need to choose a line of work. You know, this is addressed to people that are younger now who are just getting out of college and stuff, um, who want to make the world a better place. Um, You always kind of have to choose between the macro and the micro. So you have to choose about, you know, either you're going to work in your immediate neighborhood with people you know and and try to slowly, you know, plant more trees and improve housing conditions and help poor people get jobs and and better educations and things like that. Totally cool, totally noble. Or you go for the macro level sort of global approach and try to pursue things of interest to you that can then be hopefully um, transformed in a way that will benefit you know, people everywhere. And I what I often recommend...
0: There's also, re, there's also a regional approach as well. Yeah, yeah, you so could, could also
1: do a do a regional one, um, you know, Africa-wide or Asia-wide or whatever. But, um, you know, I, I often, I have lots and lots of students who are, you know, in their 20s and lots of friends in their 20s and we talk about this type of stuff all the time. And, you know, one of the re- key recommendations I make to them is that, um, you know, no matter what it is you choose, make sure it's something that you like doing, you know? Um, make sure it's something that, You know, in an ideal world, if you can do it without feeling that you're working, then you've probably, you're probably halfway there to choosing the right thing. So don't choose something where you know you're going to lose all the time, when you know you're going to be stressed out, when you know you're going to be exploited, when you know you have to commute for two or three hours each way, you know, on and on and on. There's all sorts of criteria you can deploy, but, you know, you got to choose something that's, you know, that moves you, something that automatically generates a passionate response. Um... And in so doing, you're far more likely to stick with it. Because I've seen a lot of people burn out over the years, you know, doing this kind of work. It's very easy to burn out and to just go, screw it. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm going to go work for Wall Street and become an investment banker because I can at least get rich that way, you know? And that happens, you know, all the time. Or they just get too scared, you know? I mean, there's a lot of places where doing work like this is truly dangerous and they might get arrested, they might get tortured, you know, they might be threatened with death.
0: Or, or, um, or they just get burnt out and, and, and are unwell.
1: Yeah, or unwell and then j- they just give up and and that was kind of that you know so it, it's hard to have sort of a pat answer, but you know the bottom line is you know uh, we have the numbers, you know, as I saw Robert Reich, the the former Clinton administration official say the other day, you know, don't forget we have the numbers, you know there's far more people that are kind and loving and compassionate and empathetic and want better for the world and care about the environment and so on and so forth than the ones that don't, you know? And so we need to have, you know, we truly need to pursue democratic structures globally and certainly nationally and locally, but globally, whereby every single person has an active agentic role to play in helping to develop relevant policies and laws so that we can actually achieve, you know, human potential. So that that's what I'm constantly advocating for. That we need to come up with new ways of expanding democracy instead of reducing it. We need to engage more people. We need to give more people confidence that um, governance structures can be designed in such a way that are actually beneficial and truly transparent. You know, corruption has to be removed from all levels of politics. Um, and you know, you need to have. I would not mind a world where there were just boring, totally nondescript technocrats in control of making political decisions. And none of this sort of, you know, grandstanding celebrity showbiz type leadership that so many countries unfortunately are um, experiencing now, you know, but it all comes down to the people, obviously it all comes down to ordinary people. And, all you need to do is go to any developing world city and well, increasingly developed world cities and just take a quick look and see that, you know, what's been done since the end of the war, 75 years um, has not really um, made anywhere near the amount of positive difference in the lives of ordinary people that it, than it should, you know, and as climate change in particular worsens, um, you know, we think of climate change only as an environmental issue. It's ultimately an economic issue, and uh, as well as an environmental one. And, and you know, millions of people are going to lose their jobs and their homes and their lands, end up destitute and just have the whole cycle start all over again with all of the, you know, consequent instability and violence and problems and, and emergent dictatorships and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's, once again, there's no clear pat answer to um, to those questions. But I would say that You know, you always have to take the perspective in the first case of the people, but at the same time not ignore the people in power because they can be the ones that very quickly and easily pull the levers. I mean, just, you know, if people don't, you know, there are far too many similarities in many countries between the two main political parties, Um, but there is a difference when one party takes power over another and vice versa, and a very noticeable one. So we just need the political parties of the world to start focusing much more on the people per se, (laughs) excuse me, rather than the vested interests that tend to guide their policies. And because most of those vested interests, unfortunately are ones that are very centrally responsible for the CO2 emissions that have caused climate change, for instance, you know? So there's a long ways to go. Um, I think we have all the needed information that we could have to, Build better structures in society, um, but we need to have you know mechanisms in place that really get people thinking in global terms much more than we have to date. And you know, I would like to see these things taught in school, starting in preschool, and all the way until university level, and have this sense of of world citizenship, the sense of unity of the human race, the dominant thing that guides policy and. Educational perspectives and everything else um, in into the, in the coming decades and centuries, and really, I believe if we don't do this, um, we we fail to do so at very much at our collective peril as human beings as Homo sapiens.
0: Scott, well, listen to be that, that's a that's a realistic but optimistic note I think to to end on, and just a, a little quote from Maya Angelou nothing can dim the light which shines from within. And and even though sometimes life can be really tricky and tough, and especially for, as you say, young people looking forward, you know, what, what am I going to do? And will I have a job, etc. You, you know, you also have to take care of yourself and be good to yourself so that you have that optimism and the strength of will to move forward. You know, another little quote that I just Thought was kind of appropriate at this time. Sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried, but you've actually been planted. And I and I know that you're mm-hmm. a great gardener, Scott. And and when you watch your plants grow, you think, "Gee, isn't that a marvel that uh, Mother can produce like that?" And, and and in turn provide. So so true. You know, whether you're taking care of the earth and nature, whether you're taking care of yourself, they're very very much. Um, there's a relationship there that really requires nurturing and care and respect. And, and you're right. We have to try and promote that thinking with, within our communities and, and the people who, who put themselves forward to be re- hopefully responsible officials who, who govern, at least for the moment, we still have nation states and, and we want good things, um, to happen in nation states so that they can set good examples for others. So right. I, I think, I'd just like to say thanks, Scott, for for all of this. It's been an interesting conversation, as it often is with you, or I'd say it always is with you. Um, and um, I hope we can do it again sometime.
1: Well, it sounds great, and thanks very much for um, you know coming up with this idea <laughs> to interview me, yeah. and to be the guest host and everything. I really, I really enjoyed it a lot. It was great. It was my my great.
0: pleasure. My pleasure. Always good fun. Take well, care,
1: man. Say hi to Sweden for me.
0: I will say good luck down under.
1: All right. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we need hope it.
0: things get better.
1: We need it. All right. Yeah. Well.
0: Take care.
1: That was me. That was episode 30 of Jointly Venturing, um, guest hosted by Brian Gorlick, former UNHCR official, now happily retired and living in between Sweden and New York City at the moment. Um, Next week, we will have German Green Party politician Jürgen Walter, who's a member of the Baden-Württemberg State Parliament in Germany and has been for many, many years. Um, He was Minister of Culture for a number of years, to discuss the, the current reality of green politics in Europe uh, green politics in Germany, in particular, um, Baden-Württemberg, being of course the first uh, political entity anywhere in the world that had a green party government in place and has had one in place there for a number of years, extremely popular still. Um, in the in the pro- in the state where famous Stuttgart is located, which of course produces Mercedes-Benz. So, with that, thank you again, Brian, and fare thee well. Listeners, to Jointly Venturing, see you next time. Take care. Bye.